Welcome everybody to the third episode of the podcast where we scratch below the surface of coaching and look to find ways that we can all do it better. Again, this podcast is here for two reasons. The first is to try and create some thoughtful debate for coaches at a time where we all have some extra time in our hands and, and can't be on the field or in the gym with our players. And the second reason is, is probably the most important and it's to try and raise some much needed funds for Temple Street Children's Hospital. For new listeners, it would be great if you could find the link below and donate anything small that you have spare. Uh, and for those of you who are, who are here before, I just want to say a huge thank you to everybody who has donated so far and, and to everybody who continues to share the podcast and, and help spread the word on social media or WhatsApp. I'm delighted to say that today's guest is a former Connacht, Leinster and Ireland rugby player. Bernard Jackman will be well known to most of you and here he's kind enough to take us through his journey playing the game, the highs and lows of professional sport and how they have shaped his own coaching philosophy moving forward. He also gives some really fascinating insights from other elite and high level environments that I think coaches from every sport can take something from. I hope you enjoy and if you do, be sure to like it and review it and let me know what you think afterwards. Okay. So Bernard, thanks a million for for joining us. I appreciate your time, especially in the in the busy week with Six Nations coming up. Yeah, looking forward to it. Two days now to uh, uh, to Ireland, Wales, or, or sorry, on Sunday, and um, yeah, England, England, Scotland on, on Saturday. Uh, it's always a special time of year. It's diff- It's a lot different at the moment. Obviously, normally I'd have my WhatsApp group would be hopping. Where are we meeting uh, Saturday night in Cardiff for for pints or whatever, but. Uh, yeah, let's look at it. We're so lucky to have professional sport, um, elite sport going on this lockdown. And obviously, um, you know, pro rugby still going. I know the, G- the GA is on hold at the moment. But uh, yeah, I was sick of watching rewatches, rematches, um, yeah. to be honest, the, the last yeah. time. It's nice to have something to talk about. It is. It is. Even the I, I find myself now, I, I, I support Man United, but, you know, I'd be one yeah. of those casual peoples. But now I'm, I'm, every time it's a game, now I'm glued to it every night. It's just great that pro sport, as you said, is going on and giving us something for people that are interested in sport, uh, some bit of an outlet, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. But I just want to maybe just for people, I know most people probably are, but maybe just for people that aren't, uh, could you just give a very, very brief kind of introduction or, or breakdown of where you came in terms of your playing and then onto your onto your, your coaching career as well? Yeah. So I was in the first batch of professional players to ever get contracted in Ireland. So I think in 96, there was a vote um, after the 95 World Cup, um, which South Africa won. Uh, there was a big push for the game to go professional. The uh, Rupert Murdoch uh, got involved. There was talk about a breakaway group, etc. But the unions got back control and managed to contract um, all the major players in, in in each country. And um, in actual fact, the IRFU voted against professional rugby, but at a world level, it, it was voted in. So um, yeah. they went into it kicking and, and screaming. Um, and the first year, they offered five contracts uh, to each province full time, and then the rest were part time contracts. So the the first contract, the full-time contract was 25,000 a year and um, would have been punts, I think. Um, yeah. And then the part-time contract was 7,500, but you got match fees. You got around approximately 500 a match and then 500 win bonus. So I was, I was, I was in college. I was, uh, I was studying international marketing in Japanese. So I thought it was Christmas. And uh, <laughs> the challenge was I was supposed to go to Japan. So uh, for my third year and do six months in college over there, six months work experience, and then come back and do one more year. And Warren Gatland, when he offered me the contract, said, look, you know, you obviously can't go to Japan. You have to be in Ireland. Um, and he was a school teacher himself. And he said, look, no one knows if professional rugby is going to take off or not. Like, we could be back amateur in a year's time. So you could be one of only 20 players in Ireland to 
have been professional. Um, and likewise, if you go to Japan, the batch of players who get those contracts are going to be miles ahead of you when you come mm. back. So mm. he let me transfer into business studies. So I, I joined Connacht, transferred into business studies at ECU, and I, I studied virtually, um, which, which we all know <laughs> now. And uh, I ended up getting my degree uh, there. Uh, Warren went to Ireland. Um, at the end of those two years, I had a little look around and, and I had an agent and he found me a deal in Sail Sharks in, in, um, in Manchester. And I know you're a United fan. I am as well. And uh, So I went to Manchester for two years, played for Sail Sharks, came back to Ireland because I wanted to get capped for Ireland. And at that stage, all the guys who went away were coming back and had failed a medical, actually, failed a medical to, play, uh, to get a contract with RFU. So I went back and got a real job. I worked for a company called AstraZeneca as a sales rep for a year. Got back after about four months, went, went playing for my club, Clontarf, um, in AIL, performed pretty well. And at the end of that year, I had an offer from Leinster and Connacht, and Eddie O'Sullivan was the Irish coach. He sent me, he said, look, I want you to go to Connacht. Shane Burm is in Leinster, who's the Irish hooker. Mm. And uh, went back to Connacht for two more years, then got to move to Leinster, uh, which is my home province. Uh, spent five years there. And then uh, that's my playing career. Uh, won a Heineken Cup at Leinster 2009. Won a Magnus League 2008. Won a Challenge Cup at Sale 2004. Was part of the Grand Slam uh, in 2009. And then I went coaching. I went to Grenoble for five years. And then I was coaching in the, the Dragons in Wales. And uh, now I'm coaching my old school, Newbridge. And coaching a club called Bechtel. So yeah, I've, it's, that, that's, that's the, the, long, the long answer to a short question. Yeah, it's mad when you say 96 there. It's actually, it, it, it seemed like it's a lot longer. Sure, that's, that's, maybe that's just a sign we're getting old. But it doesn't seem like it's that long ago that the game turned professional. No, and uh, to be honest... We probably didn't really turn professional properly for about five or six years. I mean, mm. um, and you know what it was? We actually overtrained. Um, so effectively, you had these coaches who came in and suddenly they had you full time. And I think the sense was that um, if you're not flogging them, um, mm. you're not making use of being full time. Yeah. Our, our balance was completely wrong. We didn't have any recovery. Uh, we were overtrained, and it wasn't that you know you're 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 familiar now with the you know um, the different data points that can give you some good feedback around where players are at. So um, yeah, we got absolutely flogged, and not in a, and we weren't our body wasn't ready for it either because we went way too quick um, right. from a two night a week kind of regime to basically four times a day, and uh, <laughs> so now now it's much more exact and and the sport yeah. incentive, and also. When guys come into a professional contracts at 20, their training age is, is already very high from mm -hmm. from the, the development squads and the academies, etc. So there's not as big a jump, but no, it was crazy. But look, it was great. It was great times because, as I said, we, we still had the amateur ethos, still had the amateur attitude to a certain extent, but we're, we're able to do it for a living. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's a great. That's a great. It's great to have been there at the genesis of it, I suppose, and 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 in that in that area where it went from amateur to professional. That's interesting. Just maybe, uh, obviously, the, the emphasis on this then, Shane, is is our um, Bernard is, is about that is, is about that kind of coaching element, and uh, I'm just interested maybe of, of of people or how you fell in love with the game, kind of first day or, or yeah, or was it so, your parents or where where did that come no, from? No, so basically, yeah. So I was um I'm. I'm a son of a cattle dealer, um, third generation cattle dealer, eldest in my family. Um, so as a, a seven, eight, nine year old, I was out in the yard. I was at Mart. So I was down in Kerry actually a lot. My dad used to buy in Kerry three days a week. Um, I used to go with him in the lorry. We'd go to Tralee on a Monday. Um, uh, uh, they stole our castle line on a Wednesday and stole on a Thursday. And yeah. down there, trying, and like I used to get to buy a few cattle, like 
uh, obviously my dad would tell me what to pay, whatever. Uh, so I was really interested in that. And um, no one in my family or my extended family had ever gone to, to college. In actual fact, none of, none of my uncles from my dad's side had, had even like finished school or whatever. So um, uh, because of work and things like that. Mm. So effectively, my mum and dad had a chat and they said, look, at, um, he's obviously got the love for, for, the, for cattle and, and livestock and, and dealing. Um, if he stays around here, the likelihood is he won't finish school, you know, and we don't really want to have him have no choice to mm. like him to have a choice whether he goes into the business or whether he does something else. So they decided to send me to boarding school and give me that choice. And the, the deal we had was that I do the leaving cert. And if I didn't want to do anything more, that was perfect. I came home. Right. Um, but at least by doing the leaving cert and being in an environment where, you know, you had three hours study a night uh, without choice. Uh, uh, compulsory study that you you had some chance of actually doing well in exams. So, yeah. and then we then we had a choice. We had a nerd chat, and they said, "Look, if you want to go to university, great. And if you after university, if you don't want to use your your degree, I want to come home. There's no problem." So, um, that's where I played rugby. Basically, I played Gaelic until I went until I went to, to school and loved Gaelic. I'm, I live in the Wicklow Carlow border, and my club competition was in Wicklow. So, um, I, I was playing a lot of Gaelic football. Uh, loved it. The only sport you could play in in, in, in school in Newbridge College from September to March was was rugby. You could only play soccer or Gaelic after March. So um, I joined, joined, played that, loved it, uh, but wasn't a star by any manner of means. That, not that I ever was, but um, like I didn't play. I played. I was on the first team. I captained the team and stuff like that. But I wasn't that. I wasn't in Leinster schools and things like that. So when I left school, my ambition was to go to the, to university and and maybe play All Ireland League, which is for a club team, and just enjoy it. And uh, when I started to get a bit better, Brent Pope, for the former T- RTE commentator. So I joined Lansdowne out of school and uh, was doing quite well and ended up playing under 20s and playing, getting a game for the first that year. And I actually played under 20s, third Bs, third As, thirds, seconds, firsts, because it, it, um, in this kind of in February, March, the, the junior league, so basically the third A's, third B's might play on a Tuesday night, right? So right. have like they'd have 10 or 12 old fellas um, and they'd want to bring in a couple of young lads. To yeah, run. Yeah. So but the deal was you played on a Tuesday night for them and then they bought you a few pints in the bar. And like I was a student, <laughs> so I ended up playing for any, pretty much every team. At the end of the season, I got a taste of the first team and I was delighted and I said, okay, wow, I can play this level. Um, but the, the way the captaincy works, they named their captain for the following year in, in, in season so the captain that was being nominated for the following year a very good player actually way better than me a guy called Mark McDermott who ended up playing for Munster in Ireland Day was made captain I was like well I'm not going to play I'm not, I'm not going to play first if he's the captain and uh, so I was playing a seconds match one Sunday and a guy called Brent Pope um, was coaching Clontarf and he came to watch a winger that he was trying to sign and I had a good game and afterwards he, he came up to me and said oh look at, you know I need a hooker as well and uh, I said well I'm studying DCU uh, which is closer to Clontarf than Lansdowne. And um, I said, is there a chance to play in the first? He said, look, you'll, you'll, you'll play in the first if you train hard or whatever. So I said, okay. So I went there to Clontarf and uh, he was a brilliant influence to me. I mean, he used to keep me back after training and work on my lines of running, work on my tackling, work on my uh, ball carrying. And, and to be honest, he was the one who rang Warren Gatland when Gatland got a Connacht job and said, look, there's a hooker here. Um, if he gets a crack, he'll, he'll do well for you. So I owe him a lot. I mean, it's just pure coincidence that 
he was at that match that day. I never would have thought yeah. of John Clark, you know. Yeah, yeah, just a bit of a bit of good luck, I suppose, in, in yeah. that sense. Yeah, and and from from there, then like the the transition once you eventually finished playing into the coaching side of it, where like what grabbed you about about that side of the game, you know, the coaching as opposed to the playing. Yeah, well, look, I saw the influence Popey had on on me and the team. I had a very good coach in school, an ex-army guy called Paddy Butler, who, who definitely influenced me. So I decided pretty early that I wanted a coach when I when I finished playing. And I had a very good coach in under 14s as well, um, a guy called Pele Kyo. And uh, he influenced me and influenced the team in a really positive way around, you know, just little messages around being consistent, around preparation, around teamwork and things like that. So I really, you know, I, I, I bought into... I bought into influential coaches and um, felt that you know they gave me good lessons for for play for rugby and um, and, and and for life. So I, I kind of decided I wanted to coach pretty early. So when I was 23, when I was playing for Connacht on my second stint, um, my local club, Tullow Rugby Club, um, rang me and said, "Look, the club aren't going very well. Uh, would you come back and and coach us?" And like these are this is a men's team now. When I'm 23, now I was professional. Uh, so I, I'd been in, I, like I had good experience, but I was still way younger than yeah. a lot of the players. So um, I said, yeah, but I was living in Galway. So two nights a week, I drove from Galway to, to Tullow. Um, got in a friend of mine, a fellow called David Mahan. He covered for me when there was a match that clashed, but they played Sundays and we, we normally play Friday night or Saturday. So generally I was able to go to all the games. And yeah. uh, so I started that, I started at 23 and then, um, then, I, then I couldn't really commit to it. I took a break from it for a couple of years. Then at 27, I coached. Newbridge, which would be the kind of the old boys club of the school. So there'd be a lot of guys I went to school with. And then I joined, um, then I coached Coolmine, which would be another junior club. So by the time I'd finished coaching, playing in Leinster and retired, I'd had seven or eight years of, of coaching clubs and, and success. So like we got, all the clubs got promoted. Um, the seconds always won their league. So we kind of created a really good squad ethic and uh, massive numbers of training. And uh, yeah, I loved it. It was great. Yeah, it's and it's interesting there. You even mentioned your your under fourteen coach. Uh, yeah. like that that even even he was an influential character in 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 your in your playing or, or and going on to your coaching. Yeah, what was it? What was it like? I, I'm fascinated with and you always hear this in sports yeah. where people reference coaches that were, you you might feel if you're an under fourteen coach, what what influence are you having on a Bernard Jackman? You know, yeah. twenty years later, but you're still referencing this person as somebody who influenced you in in, in that journey. Yeah, do you know what he did, Mike? And I don't think he ever knew what he was doing, but and it's very common and topical at the moment, is he was a great storyteller. Mm. Uh, so we, we basically were a very good team. We were stacked. So we'd won, we'd won every game for about two years. And I used to remember like on, on summer nights, we'd, we'd train really hard and, and we'd prep and he'd just sit us all down in a huddle and he'd talk around kind of, um, you know, underdog stories and how hot favourites got caught. And, and just, like, listen, he told loads of stories, but... I remember that was the big thing about the need to always, always go out and perform and always treat every every opponent with the utmost respect. And you know, it's something that I would would be keen to to use now is 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 getting your message through telling a story or using teaming and things like that. So he did it, and then look at he wouldn't have been an academic at all. Um, mm. It was just natural to him, and how he loves sport. So he loved all sport. He loves horse racing. He loved you know hurling. He loved soccer. So he was always bringing examples from. Uh, from other sports in terms of trying to help us help deliver a message and uh yeah so he was and i and i remember writing to him when i made when i played for ireland and and uh telling him how how much he meant to me as a, as a coach and, yeah. I, and his wife 
I was wife at my mum later on. She said that like that meant a lot to him because look, mm. you're under fourteen coach, you don't get that. You're not appreciated, you know. And you're, no. you're never a um, was it a, never an, very rarely an expert in your own parish or or whatever. Yeah. So, like I couldn't understand how he he wasn't you know one of these coaches who were going around you know on on the circuit and, and bringing teams on from other counties. He never really strayed from from doing the underage stuff. And yeah. uh, look at I, I think the, the the gift you have when you're a coach or the opportunity you have when you coach is is uh, is really important. And we don't sometimes we get caught up in the technical tactical side of it, and that's really important. But we actually can, you know, for a lot of people, we're a point of a point of contact or a point of reference or, or hopefully a role model for them. And uh, it's important to know that. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. Like there was, there was a, there's a, a man in our, in my own club in Cairns, and he's, he's not coaching anymore, but he must have coached for, I don't know how many, how many years. He, he never strayed from the under eights, under tens, or under twelves. He never wanted to take the senior team. He never wanted to, to go on. And and it's incredible. And 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 it's great to hear those stories about you know like even you writing the letter to to him after you made, played for Ireland. Like that that stuff is worth more than than winning any championship with a with a senior team down the line. You know, it's it's powerful stuff. Yeah, well, for those for those type of people, they they do. I think they do take um, a lot from that because as I said they're not people who are. Who have twenty thousand followers on on Facebook or or, yeah. or influencers? You know they very rarely yeah. get told. They very get they very rarely get appreciated, and that, and and that's the that's the problem with the modern world to a certain extent that we don't often stop and go like who helped me who helped get me there. So like I know there's like you know that guy I had in school, Paddy Butler, Brent Pope. I probably don't tell them enough. Well, Paddy mm. just passed away, but I don't tell them enough how much I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's a powerful message, to be fair. And and how did those, I suppose, all those influences, as well as your own playing and stuff, kind of shape your own philosophy on coaching? Would it, would it, you know, was it something more, more because of the way you played or the, the way you were coached when you were playing, and your own ideas in the game? How did they kind of come together? Look, and I think it's uh, something I learned a lot from. I think for me, so I, I think I've got really high levels of resilience. So. Um, I had a lot of setbacks, you know, I was dropped from Ireland, Ireland squads um, 11 times. Uh, and, you know, I, I would flip that and say, well, I got picked 10 times, you know, on the way back. So um, there was lots of times when I, I had that year where I had no contract. So for about seven or eight years, I was the only guy in Ireland who ever left the professional game, was out of it, got back in. Um, you know, in my Leinster career, twice I was told, oh, we're not going to keep you next year. And I managed to to change their mind and end up, you know, being a key part, well, playing a role and getting them um, across the line in, in the European Cup. So I didn't mind kind of, um, sorry, I enjoyed probably challenges and, and really difficult conversations where you're told, look at uh, Bernard, you know, X, Y, and Z aren't good enough. If you don't fix that, um, you're you're not going to have a future, whatever. Mm. I The challenge for me is, is that a lot of people don't perform better with that kind of um, yeah. management uh, and, and communication. So that's probably something I, I learned um, is that unless you have a group of players who are very, very mature, very resilient, very confident in their own ability, um, uh, very committed to the cause, they can't handle that. They won't handle that well. Like, so in Leinster, we handle that really well. I mean, um, Cheka came in, you know, he drove us, he worked us like dogs um, and you know, wouldn't let us relax for a second, but we were ready for it. We had the group who could who could handle that, and it got the best out of us. But that doesn't work for 
I say that that's it's rare that that works. Then um, that works, or, or it can work with a group of really elite uh, individuals more more likely than with a group of players who've had um, a lack of uh, who have a lack of self belief or have had a lot of rejection and and yeah. criticism and disappointment. So that's something that I can't like. What works for me won't work for for the majority. So um, I think now I'm more, I'm more mature and more switched into the whole whole environment and that and that need to to make sure we care for each other and look after each other and and work with it differently in terms of focus on people's strengths individual development plans um you know good feedback uh but not feedback rather than, than criticism mm. No. Yeah, there there is a difference, I suppose, but it's 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 still the, that I think I think players and and like yourself, no, not obviously in the same level or whatever, but uh, you know you deal with as a, if you're playing sport at any kind of a level, you're dealing with setbacks uh, apart from the the very few who are at the very very pinnacle of, of of their own ability, but everybody else is dealing with a lot of you know setbacks or rejections or getting dropped and all that stuff. And and I I think all that stuff absolutely shapes the way that you you coach and the way that you deal with people and uh, and how you interact and and if you have to deliver bad news yourself or whatever it is yeah. like that stuff is tough like that's the toughest part of the game it's not enjoyable but at least if you're doing it with you know I suppose with that empathy that that you've gone through this stuff before and and you know that it sucks but but at least you can be honest and and deliver it straight. Yeah no absolutely it's it's huge and um, I think. Yeah, it's it's just getting that balance right, and and knowing your player, knowing your coaching staff and team, um, and be able to I suppose tailor your communication, um, to try and push the right buttons and and mm. not stretch them, but not overstretch them. If you get me, I think yeah, you know, uh, very little, very very rarely does a completely comfortable environment get you where you need to go, particularly if you take a job that does need, um need to be changed up which let's be honest most teams don't change manager or coach uh when things are going well mm. but um you know there's the it, it, there's the need to change but also there's need to be able to implement that change at a, at, at the right at the right pace yeah um you you mentioned there when you started out i suppose to you know that maybe maybe the coaches and yourselves weren't ready for the switch from from amateurism to to the professional game. How how has the coaching changed now? We'll say from if you're looking back on that period to to what's being done now. Yeah, absolutely. There's a huge focus now on on educating everybody around um, you know the importance of a, a growth mindset, importance of learning. You know, learning is a given, but it's uh, the competitive advantage you can have is how quickly you learn. And, and I just think that's um, you know, I've been lucky enough to be part of um, some groups in lockdown where you know really high-level coaches are just obsessed about about learning, sharing, problem-solving, probing, um, trying to take on information and learnings from other people's experience, what worked, what didn't work. So um, it's been fascinating, and, and uh, I think the really good practitioners are are able to sell that to the players as well. So it's all well and good. You know the management team being obsessed about getting better, but yeah. if the if the players aren't um, obsessed, they don't see that that need to to take lessons from training, to take lessons from games, and um, you're not gonna you're not gonna achieve anything. And and you know Dublin and obviously in, in football, I mean obviously they have a lot of resource and all that stuff, but um, I think in terms of their mindset around getting better. Um, and understanding what wins games and understanding everybody's role 
Um, it's it's incredibly impressive. And then the other thing I think that we're very good at now, in, or sorry, the, co- the good coaches I know, and this isn't just rugby. I mean, uh, I've been lucky enough to to dabble in other sports, but there's a real level of detail around roles and responsibilities. And and mm-hmm. I was lucky enough, I I spent a few days in Williams Formula One uh, factory as part of um, Leaders in Sports program. And, uh, you know, Williams are historically a, a very successful Formula One team, but over the last decade or whatever, they're, they're at the back of the grid. Um, but, uh, you know, from my experience of of going into high-performing teams, I would say that they're, they are a high-performing team, just obviously they might not have the financial clout to, to have the right engine or the right chassis at, yeah. at the top of the grid. But uh, effectively, you know, the... There was a lady hired um, to be the performance coach for the for the pit crew, and the level of detail that, that she went into with each each member of that pit crew, whose whose job was to, to basically um, change the tires and fill the car up at a, at a pit stop, and um, you know, so the guy, the right the right wing guy, you know, he needed more flexibility in his in his right hamstring than his left hamstring, etc. And they designed programs, and they started. Jeez nutrition and hydration and sleep and all those things that we would say, yeah, that's going to be important for a 5k runner at the Olympics. Well, no, they actually implemented all that stuff to, you know, mechanics and, yeah. uh, and, but also every mechanic knew exactly what his, his or her role was, you know, what tools they needed to be able to execute that. And, and for me, it's a, you know, it's just an example, but like mm. the best management teams, everybody knows the parameters. Mm. And it's not that you want to stop that free spiritness or whatever. And, you want to stop um, your SSC coach being able to have a word with the with the corner forward or whatever about about football. Obviously, that's the boss decides the kind of flexibility in that. You've got someone like Eddie Jones or or Joe Schmidt who'll be more look at I'm the rugby boss um, and you know I'm the one who tells the players what they need to do. Or you've got mm-hmm. someone like Andy Farrell who's more you know it's 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 a team effort. We can all help each other. And like there's lots of different ways to skin a cat. But the, part, the important thing is to know in what environment you're working under or what yeah. parameters you're working under. So um, I think that's really important. That's, uh, and that's something that I, I've seen done really well is that, and, and look at at the moment, support teams are big for, for elite teams. You know, it's not just a selector, a coach and a, and a manager anymore. There's a lot more people involved and the better clarity we can give them across the board. I think the more clarity the players have and hopefully then the, the better the performances is. Yeah, um, that's that. Yeah, a pit, a pit stop there. You're trying, you're trying to get the car in and out in about nine seconds. But that's it's amazing, isn't it? Like that, that detail. Yeah, you got to get your right hammer a little bit more flexible. And yes, yeah. I honestly, stuff. we were, we were blown away. First of all, we were blown away by the fact that Williams basically advertised for this uh, head of performance for the pit crew, and I think they were more shocked by the fact that. They were getting urine samples. They were, Jesus. Uh, they were getting tested in their flexibility. You can imagine, like an old-fashioned um, pit crew. And in fairness, they actually, to be honest, they, not just Williams, but across the, that that sport, they got pit stops so quick. Mm. They actually had to put in a, a minimum level um, oh, yeah. uh, because it was getting dangerous. Uh, so it's like the the um, the four minute mile. You know, once um, once someone runs it, yeah. Uh, Year five or six of the runs, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Roger Bannister, our man. Yeah. Um, you were, you were, you mentioned there that you dabbled in other sports. You were, we, you were stuck with, uh, you did a little bit with Cork and, and Wexford. For, yeah, for, for yeah. Uh, so basically, uh, so like 
where I'm from, I'm on the Wicklow Carla border, but I wouldn't be that far from Wexford either. And my uh, a lot of our clients or customers were, are in Wexford. So I spent a lot of time in Wexford as well. And uh, I don't know what the connection was. Um, Gordon Darcy must be busy because he's a Wexford man. But anyway, Jason, <laughs> Jason Ryan wanted to uh, get someone down from Leinster to speak about how we went from being, um, uh, as, as Neil Francis said, lady boys into being champions of Europe. And uh, so I basically, I, 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 I was into, I'm, I'm into Gaelic football. Um, and I said, yeah, I'd love to come down. So I went down to training one night, watch him train, then, then gave a little bit of a talk um, and told our story and uh, went down really well or whatever. Jason's enjoyed it and, and they asked me would I, would I come back? And so I ended up coming back um, a few times. I ended up going to Croke Park with them, etc., cetera, and um, talking to them pre-match, uh, talking to them in the qualifiers at halftime because they were going bad against Galway. Um, and we ended up winning and we ended up beating Galway in Galway, which for Wexford in football was like yeah. Galway are our big team. Um, we had a very good team and we had a very good culture and I was only a, like I was only literally a tiny part of it, but um, I really enjoyed it. And uh, you know, like it was great. And then obviously I went to France, so I was completely out of football. Except I did a little bit with Down um, with uh, Jamesy, uh, uh, a little bit with Down when I was home for a summer. I was home for a holiday. And then last year, Ronan, Ronan McCarthy asked me to go down to work, and uh, they got relegated actually. So I went down to talk around. Um, you know, dealing with that and 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 being able to bounce back because they got relegated to Division Three, so this is back now. This is not last year. They got relegated to Division Three, and yet they still had so much to play for. They had a monster mm-hmm. championship. They had, um, you know, the target of getting into the Super Ace. And uh, you know, obviously, I don't know if you remember, but we actually gave Kerry a decent game in that monster final. Um, and then we we went into Super Ace and we we actually lost all three games, but we we had moments in those games. Played well, yeah. Where, where there was there was definitely positives to take and obviously um, with COVID and things like that I, I wasn't involved this year but yeah look at it I love it I love it I love the um, I, I love the camaraderie and sense of identity I think as Irish people and this is something that I, I, I struggled with a little bit in Wales in that you know um, you know we know where we're from we, we, we want we know it starts with playing for your parish and then play for your county and then uh, obviously in, in Gaelic playing for your province isn't as big a deal because of the competition but for in rugby you know, you generally play for your local club or school and then you try and play for your province. And uh, I love that about county teams, about the level of commitment and um, clear sense of identity and wanting mm. to do something for your people is, is, very, is a very strong uh, driver. Yeah. And, and in not, not, I'm not asking you specifically about those setups or anything, but how, how did those kind of inter-county GA setups you know, compare or contrast maybe with what you were used to in a rugby sense. Obviously, they're not professional and, and they're, yeah. they're below that, but just maybe commonalities between yeah, the two. Yeah, look, and I think, um, again, for me in Wexford, and that's where I spent more time than I did in Cork, sometimes it was actually, and look at this back, I'm sure it's changed a hell of a lot, but that was 2009, 2010, maybe. Um, the player, it was nearly curbing their enthusiasm mm. that, you know, say 10 is a, is a maximum intensity session like and I, I look, I understand because they're driving from wherever they're driving from to get to training. They're only maybe together two nights a week, um, or three nights a week. They kind of want to get back in the car, feeling they've actually like spent the yeah. thing. But there's actually, you know, I was saying, well, hang on, you know, we have all week together, forty eight weeks of the year. We don't go balls out 
on a Monday. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Like we'll do, we'll we'll do loads of walk and talk. We'll do loads of walkthroughs. Um, you know, we'll have static sessions. We'll have clip blackboard sessions, whiteboard sessions. You know, and then we'll go on a on a Tuesday for a thirty five minute block because that's our our training week. And then maybe we'll go fast block for fifteen minutes on a on a Thursday, and then we'll do more clarity. Uh, and they like, and I just felt that they they get in the car on a Thursday night, and if they hadn't like really had great intensity, they felt that they weren't getting better. Yeah. Um. And I was trying to say, well, look, yeah, absolutely. You know, intensity is really important, but there's learning, there's understanding, there's just tapering off, there's strategy that you can't get if you if you go a million miles an hour. And and you know, another team I, I was with, um, and. There was basically a bit of a, a standoff between the management and the players, right? So the, the what standoff? Sorry, sorry. Um, there's, there's a confusion, basically, and uh, and the example was um, we're, we're not implementing the kickout strategy that that's been designed, okay? And uh, feedback was from from players. We're not really sure what that strategy is okay? okay uh so i spoke to the management and the manager we've we've ever told them fucking we've ever told them <laughs> we've told them we've told them we've told them uh they know what it is right and i said well they don't know what it is, okay? um and again like it's just a case of saying well look at the most and you know this is that um it's only like you're only coaching if, if it's understood you know realistically it, like, and if you have to go back you know back three weeks or or back three steps to restart again and go out in a different way. Um, well then do that, you know, do that because the most important thing is that it, it's, it's understood and implemented and, and also not just a general understanding. It, the reality is at the at elite level, uh, you know, there's, there's always going to be something that happens that will change the circumstances. And then you have to kind of predict, well, how are we going to react to that? Or how's your system work? When when they do this, and and it take a lot of talking, understanding, um, and to do it, and I understand you you've got a limited time on the field, and um, you know you want to get your running meters in, you want to have intensity, but I think that's something that we've got better at in, in my sport, is actually kind of getting those learning blocks in the week, and I know mm -hmm. we've got time, but um, I would say you know you need to make sure the players understand exactly what's expected of them rather than have it and, and and to get that feedback before you get knocked out of the championship or before you lose a big game you're way better off than just having it you know at the review meeting after you've lost a big game going oh we didn't really know what you meant you know mm, yeah so the, the tactical side of it's so all or the amount of time spent on 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 understanding the tactical approach to the game i suppose is is yeah would have been a, yeah a and also thing. like i mean the 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 different wrinkles so you know, it's it's easy to have. I suppose a kickout is a very simple example, whatever. But um, you know, what what happens if they do this? You know what I mean? And look, at rugby's not perfect at it. I mean, there's been a few examples in the last few weeks. I don't know if there's any rugby fans in this, but Connacht had a couple of of opportunities late in the game from a set piece opportunity. There was one against um, Munster where Munster had 13 players on the field, Connacht had 15, and they picked the wrong shot selection. And again, you know afterwards the coaches like they didn't throw the players on the bus but he said look at you know we had to we had to play in our locker there for that to execute that um but for whatever reason there was a lack of understanding and in fairness they went away and 
they had one the following week actually 15 against 14 the same position and they scored off it so they had to learn from it but it's trying to predict it's trying to predict what could happen and do our do our our game decision makers understand that and can we react to that in the moment hmm. and and i suppose in gaelic football and a lot of invasion games that the idea of that you know games based approach or the games based coaching where where we are trying to replicate that that situation that you talk about connect and monster where we are putting you in that position a couple of times in training and uh, i wonder is that if you're talking about maybe 35 minutes on a tuesday and 15 or 20 minutes a half an hour next day on a thursday are are rugby players in that position enough to make those those decisions on the fly themselves or or is it very much becoming a little bit programmed or how no, you look at that look we would be using the games based approach. Sorry, I meant I meant that if that 40 minutes on Tuesday might be like really kind of high intensity. You might have contact. Okay. Your session, the 15 minutes on a, on a on a Thursday might be only 15 minutes of 45 or of 60 where gotcha. it's it's high speed. Um okay. and different clubs do it different ways. But um no, look at I think the difference in our game, your game is a lot more fluid. So we have mm. we have natural pauses for set piece, um, yeah. which gives you a chance to uh to basically launch something that's pre-programmed, and the idea of that is to is to get you into a situation where you, you're sticking to your system, but there is more fluidity. Mm. Um, and I look at I think that we the difference we have is that we have time to do hot review. Well, you have time to do hot reviews, but we have time to to you know at the end of the session we're training during daylight, you know. So yeah, yeah. yeah we have TV on the side of the pitch, um, we can go back into the office to to review it that afternoon before fellas go home, whereas you lads are, you know, lads are tearing to get their, their post-match food or post-training food, get in their cars, get home. Because sleep, you got to weigh it, balance up, you know, is it is it better to keep them there at 12 o'clock at night to review mm. it? Is it better to have them in their bed uh, at half 10? You know, there's so many yeah. different um, advantages that pro sport have, but we would do a lot of game-based training and Leinster would be very game-based uh, training approach. Um but they still have time to to put the detail into those those set piece type um, scenarios. Yeah. yeah, you have that flexibility of the time, yeah. like you said. Like guys are guys are grabbing their grub now, getting into the cars, and they're and they're gone before some fellas yeah. get off the pitch. You know, it's it's that's the difference, I suppose. Um, but for underage coaches, maybe listen to this morning. If there was a message or a couple of key things that um, you know that they could that they could take from that, maybe to to improve their own their own delivery of, of kids, like you're talking about in the 14s or 15, 16s, whatever it might be. Yeah, uh, look, I think um, we need to as coaches, no matter what generation we are or came from, is to understand what they're into. Uh, so, and I have coached, um, I have coached, I coached in a group of under 18, so I coached in uh, a senior cycle in school. Um, and I'm using teaming with them, um, which I, I find is really, it really gets their focus and, and I can relay messages through that. So, for example, last year, um, we use the Spartans, you know, uh, so obviously it's it's not current and modern, but um, there was a lot of stories we could use from the Spartans that helped create that that unity. And uh, and this year I'm using uh, Formula One, actually, ironically, which is um, uh, based on uh, Drive to Survive, which is a season on Netflix. Um, yeah. So I basically got them all to watch it and we use basically Formula One. So for example, if we want to talk around um, rivalry, you know, we'll look at uh, maybe McLaren against Williams, and I'll get a player to do a bit of research on that and, and present to the group. If we want to talk around 
so basically the the team is the car and all our job is to make the car go faster uh, but yet the drivers are individuals and the players are all individuals and we all want them to have their own unique way of driving the car so there's lots of little things that that i know a lot of coaches are 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 using um gamification um and there's lots of research online for, uh, on that so basically a lot of the kids now are into playstation xboxes uh, power-ups level-ups all that stuff mm -hmm. and trying to bring that into your training and it sounds daunting but like you know i i, I have a presentation on it if anyone needs it um because i'm not an expert on it but i got in a guy to speak to our coaching group who is and uh, it was fascinating and it wasn't that hard it was just a mm -hmm. case of actually you know learning from this this presentation and i think if the players see that you are trying to reach out to them or trying to create a learning style that's exciting or interesting to them you're going to get more buy-in and, and look, and look at that. I, I think we can keep we can over we can over complicate things at times um if you get buy-in across a group you're already halfway there you know you're already halfway there so i would say have a look and see about your group and what could get them motivated what could get them going what could connect connect or create connections and that'll that'll create buy-in and then from there you start to layer everything else yeah and that that gamification <clears throat> i excuse me I, I i saw that and it's it's a fascinating thing and it's very it's very simple it's not overly complicated no. but the whole the whole idea is to try and try and make going out and kicking the ball or catching the ball or, or throwing a rugby ball to make it as as attractive as as kids sitting down playing Fortnite or, or playing yeah. Call of Duty or whatever it is and and if we could if we could get to that level obviously and, and then you're developing that kind of motivation that they want to go and do that themselves and they want to practice and get better that's obviously the the the, the beauty of it and, just, and look at to be honest sorry just on that on that like and I haven't used it extensively but I'm interested in it but the guy who presented on it is a, an academy coach in a professional club in in England so the guys he's coaching and he's had great success with it. I mean, he swears by it. Um, but like, they're all elite. They're all, you know, guys who are being, being steered towards being professional. So if they can, if they, you know, you often, we think, Oh, look at the guys who are going to be professional. They'll do anything for you. Mm -hmm. um, and he, and they would, but he's more about making it more enjoyable for them, making it more interesting. So I, I think it's definitely something, an area that's worth looking at. I mean, look yeah. at the team. Would be a different trigger point and, and would you just maybe very briefly you mentioned team in there uh, just for people maybe that aren't familiar just with with what that concept is or what that is would you would you just be able to tell people what, yeah, so what that's basically, about um it's actually been used a lot more than we maybe know so effectively it's it's either teaming a part of a season so you might team your pre-season right for whatever or you might team the whole season so probably the best exponent of it in in rugby is a guy called Scott Robertson, um, who's the coach of the Crusaders. So he effectively five or six years ago decided to use the Muhammad Ali team for the season. Okay. So um, a lot of their calls were related to boxing. So there was a hook jab. So he based what you're trying to do is you set up with a, with a general concept and he, he used Muhammad Ali and it was, um, there was loads of commonalities between Muhammad Ali and the Crusaders, right? So the Crusaders had won, hadn't won, I can't remember the exact details, but they hadn't won, say, for seven years. And it was seven years after Ali originally lost his title, went to prison, came back. Um, his final, his big fight was the Rumble in the Jungle. They played the, the final of the Super Rugby in Johannesburg, you know? So right. he was able to, we're going to Africa, we're going to the Jungle, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, so what he did was, every week on a Monday, 
they would have a different team for that opponent. Right now, it's a shorter season, maybe I think 14 or, or 15 games. And then they would interlink that with, you know, clips of, of Ali um, uh, and then clips of, of their opponent or themselves. And it was just overlaying. And the players used to basically, you know, uh, look forward to this video. And it's only a video, right? But it wasn't that. It was always this message of, of Ali. Then the year after they went into, they, they used Kings, right? Because, he, you know, he, uh, Kings reign, right? Because they were already champions. So looked into all these different Kings. Um, an actual fact, when I think back to uh, to Leinster in 2008 and nine, Michael Checker was using it, but we didn't know it. He didn't come into us and say, lads, we're using team this year. Yeah. He actually, in our videos, and, and he started putting in clips of Tour de France and um, the whole the challenge, the climbs, etc. And it was only when actually a guy, um, our vi- we have a group, uh, WhatsApp group from the 2019, and uh, he was going through his hard drive about a month ago and he actually found these motivational videos and he put them back up. And I I now, because I've, I've learned a bit about it, realized mm. that teaming, it, it, he was doing it subconsciously to us. Yeah. Um, so Liverpool last year used the All Blacks. So they nice. used the All Blacks uh, as their team. So Jorgen Klopp, would regularly speak about, about the All Blacks. So that's kind of, um, that's the gist of it. Golden State Warriors use a different one every year in basketball. Um, but I have found that, uh, I have found it's a brilliant way of, of engaging with people and subliminally get messages across through different, um, a different sport or, or area. Yeah, and it's kind of like that storytelling, like you like you mentioned yeah. before. It's it's another way of 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 maybe putting that story out there. And like it, it sounds, Bernard, just from listening to you, like that. That's like you you see that as a as a key role of any coach. Really, is is painting that picture, or giving them the vision, and 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 telling the story around that to give them the belief in in themselves to go and achieve whatever they're looking for. Yeah. So exactly. So like if you if you've won four in a bounce, right, and you're going into a a potential. Um, I suppose booby trap a team that maybe everyone expects you to, to beat. You know, you may find something from your team that's around complacency. You know, mm-hmm. it's just a different way of, of of getting that message across. And it's not just you're you're putting on a video and you're you know you're you're using the video and your own ability to uh, to tell a story. And look, I'll give you an example. So um, of, of storytelling. Um, so Sir Alex Ferguson is obviously a, a big uh, a big hero of mine, a Man United fan. And I did a thesis. I went back to college in 2010 before I went to France and did a thesis in um, or I said a master's in sports and exercise management. And I did a thesis on the correlation between high performance behaviors in sport and business. Right. So I was like, OK, well, I, I went through a, a change of culture in Leinster. So I, I have and a change of culture in Ireland as well. So I, I have those experiences, but it's very rugby specific. I'd love to know. I'd love to know why, you know, Toyota are, are, are successful for for 80 years. I'd love to know why. Dyson have been able to break into the um, into the, the Hoover and, and hair 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 dryer industry. I'd love to know why Rolex is successful. So I basically went on a road trip, and um, I went to Dyson. I went to Toyota in Japan. I went to um, Rolex in Switzerland. I went to Wigan Warriors, who were the best rugby league team. I went to IMG Academy in Florida. I went to Sydney Swans, who just won the AFL. Um, I went to the Canterbury Crusaders. So I went and, and just basically observed and talked to people. But anyway, I went to Man United for four days. And uh, at the end of the week, so I went on a Tuesday. And on a Friday, I'd scheduled a 20-minute meeting with Sir Alex. And um, United were still very good and dominant, right? So uh, it was near the end of Sir Alex's time. And um, 
I was I'd access all areas. So I was in the physio room, canteen, videos. Brilliant. It was phenomenal. And and the team trained with like unbelievable level of it, really good intensity, but high levels of accountability. Right. So like you pushed each other and they were hardening each other if, if a pass was, you know, was out of place, etc. And that was really impressive. And yes, they'd already like they'd already achieved so much. So I asked Sir Alex in my meeting, I said, Oh, how do you motivate these guys? Like they've got millions in the bank, they've loads of trophies, blah, 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 blah. And he said, I tell the same story every year. Um, and I have done since I joined United. So he goes, I grew up in a very rough part of Glasgow. Um, there was an 80% chance if you go up in my street, you were going to work in the shipyards. His father was a docker. Um, and actual fact, where he grew up has been demolished now, it was tenement houses. And he said, when he was about 15, his dad came home from work one day and he was sitting down at the table with his, with his brothers and sisters. And his dad said, boys, uh, I was coming off from work today. I saw a building site and I went in. I saw three men building a wall. I said to the first guy, he said, what do you do? And he goes, I'm a bricklayer. He said to the second guy, what do you do? And he goes, I earn 40 pound a week. I said to the third guy, what do you do? And he said, I'm building a building that in 60 years time, my son can bring his son. And he said, in this dressing room or in this meeting room, there's all these are professional footballers. Okay. Some of you earn 5,000 a week. Some of you earn 15,000 a week. But some of you in 60 years time will be able to bring your grandson or granddaughter and say your grandfather was in Man United from 90, 92 for those that generation, 92, 2010. And when he was here, we created an unbelievable level of, of consistency. And he said, he was very lucky. He said, the Roy Keynes, Dennis Irwins, the Eric Cantonas, the Yapstams, the, until obviously relationship broke, but more importantly, the Gary Neville, Phil Neville, Nicky Boyd, Paul Scholes, class of 92, they took that, to heart and if you think of it now okay they're on a bit of a research the last few months but if Dennis Irwin goes to Old Trafford in two years time when there's 82,000 people there and his face comes up on the big screen what are my United fans going to think when they think of him absolutely yeah. love it yeah uh, and and again you have footballers playing for leash some of them are happy to be playing county um uh you know uh and, and but the really good ones you know the the Ross Mullins etc like they're going to look back on their career uh, with absolute pride and fondness. And, and, and they'll be talked about, you know, they'll be talked about in 20 years' time as, as, being, as being unbelievable servants to Leash. Yeah. Uh, Bernard, you've been very generous with your time, man, so I'm not going to keep you long more, but I, I just, you mentioned the word there, and I just wanted to get your, your own thoughts on what does culture mean to you in, in terms of, of that, that rugby setting and, and the groups that you've worked with? It's you so often now, and it's, it can be quite flaky and hard. Yeah. Uh, hard to really measure um uh, i think you only really know how good it is when it's tested so when you hit dark times and tough times in terms of how much everybody's willing to put their shoulder to the wheel and, and will they stick together um and yeah but yet as a manager or leader or coach you have to put so much time into trying to create that and you know the ideal scenario is you never hit that tough spot and you just always yeah. always swimming with the with the current but the reality is um that's that's rare in elite sport you know there's usually a, a blip and a and a disappointment that you have to you know really come together on so um it's everyone talks about behavior i think it's doing it's be it's having such a connect for individuals to have such a, a, a tight connection to the mission um that they'll do things when no one's looking the right things when no one's looking that's the, that's the true sign and mm. uh 
um, and they'll step up when the pressure comes on rather than than look for an exit. So um, it's very difficult to it's very difficult to measure it. But look, when you have it right, it's it's when you're in a when you're in a good culture, it's it's way more enjoyable to be working and living in that environment than when you're in a, a negative one, you know. And and I look at I was in a couple of negative ones. Um, I was in a place, and when I was in France, we taught we had a great culture. We 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 spent a lot of time on um, doing social activities together, uh, etc. And we had an issue. We had money problems with, as a club. We asked players to take a ten percent pay cut, and everybody went completely different directions. Uh, and we lost we lost all sense of what our our purpose was. Uh, but we only found out when 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 we we changed one of the. One of the factors in, in terms of what we um you know what players were getting paid and and, and that I understand the professionals all that stuff but uh, for me I was very disappointed with how as a group we we let we didn't we didn't handle it as well as as we should have and but that's look at you as I said to you I, I feel that sometimes winning can everyone thinks great teams have a great culture winning teams have a great culture but maybe they just have more talent um, and you only find out what it is is when they when they hit a, a stumbling block. Um, you know, let's presume that a lot of people on this are coaches. Um, there's a guy, uh, Wayne Smith's probably the best rugby coach in the world. He coached the All Blacks, but he, he picks and chooses now where he works because he wants to get a better balance. But he he says performance is equal to beha- our capabilities multiplied by behaviours, right? So I think if we're coaching a team, right, obviously we got to look after, can we improve their capabilities? And um, what's their behaviors like? And we have to try and influence both of those, right? But if you have a team who, for whatever reason, at this moment in time, don't have the capabilities that your opponents have, right? Your behaviors can be absolutely brilliant, right? You can be sweeping the sheds, you can do whatever you want, right? But it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get the, the performance. Sorry, you'll get the performance levels that you're capable of. Right, but that mightn't give you the results at the end of the day mm-hmm. um, that you're expected to get or you want to get yourself for your own uh, self, self-worth self and, and um, benefit. So it's about being able to try, to try and take a little bit of a cold look at it and go, okay, well, you know, I don't have an experienced team at the moment. I don't have, you know, four forwards who can, can score uh, freely, etc. I need to be working on trying to develop that. Um, and also I need to, you know, make sure the behaviors are really good. But until you get to two of them um, at a at a high level, you shouldn't. You know, don't be hard on yourself if you don't if you don't win every game. You know, there's 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 limiting factors. We all, everybody gets obsessed about the culture side of it, and but that's only half of what determines whether you win elite sport. You know, if you don't have the capability, and I'm not saying capability is obviously game plan, etc. And there's there's parts we control in that, but the reality is if you don't have the raw talent. Um, or the experience or whatever is important for your sport um, and you're playing at elite level, you won't win every week, you know, and that's, uh, that's something that doesn't get told, you know, when you listen into the successful coaches, um, they don't talk about it often enough. And if someone tells you it's not true, well, why does Pep Guardiola spend 200 million? You know, why does Jose Mourinho, who's the greatest coach of all time need to spend? Because they buy talent. They buy yeah. talent because talent is a shortcut. Buying talent is a shortcut to success. 
Yeah, for sure. Capabilities, behavior. Yeah, that's that's a nice way to it's a nice way to put it. And it's sure it's completely true. Yeah, you can. Yeah. No, you can you can still max out with your own capabilities and the people that you have available, and and you can mm. max out with their behaviors, and you can you know get them doing everything that they can possibly do to 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 give them every chance. But well, then you're performing. Yeah, then you're performing. Yeah, but you might not have, you might not have uh, the, the the champion. You might not have the All Ireland in your in yeah your home. Do you yeah. know what I mean? That and and look, okay, the challenge is to is to get to that maximum level of performance. That's our job. Mm. But I see a lot of coaches get very frustrated, lose lose belief in their own methods because they don't have they don't have silverware at the end mm. of the season. But the reality is, if you look at what you have, um, and if you don't have that max ability that your capabilities and your behaviors should get you that trophy, well then you haven't really failed, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, I, I actually I was speaking about this with Jason last week as well, and it's a it's a tough sell for people, not a coaches. No, elite sport it is all about your 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 victories and your titles and your 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 silverware, but everywhere else, like that's the worst metric we can possibly have is is winning titles or or, or, or getting trophies. It is about trying to max out your group and, and and make sure that they're enjoying it first of all, and and that you're you're going from there, I suppose, really, isn't it? But yeah, uh, it's a tough sell for a lot of people. It is. Uh, Bernard, again, man, I, I just want to thank you a lot for your time. I, I really appreciate it. I know it's a very, very busy week for you, as I, as I mentioned earlier. And um, again, maybe for, for all of you listening, uh, there is a link below. And, and uh, again, if we could see our way to donate any couple of euros to Temple Street Children's Hospital, again, like I said, everything is going to, to them. And, and uh, you know, if there is something there, it would be really appreciated by everybody. So Bernard, again, thanks a million for your time and enjoy yeah. this weekend. Best of luck with Leash and uh, yeah, I'll be following your progress uh, with interest. All right. Thanks, Bernard. Cheers. Cheers.